0: Well, good morning, everybody. Upside Down Christmas is our Christmas series this year. And we have been studying together Matthew's account of the Christmas story because Matthew, in some very remarkable ways, shows us how Christmas really does turn everything upside down. And we're looking at one aspect, a familiar aspect of the Christmas story this morning in Matthew chapter 2. So you're going to want to get your Bibles open to that chapter. And I think many of us know this story about some mysterious wise men and this dangerous king, and we kind of tend to see this as kind of a warm, quaint, cozy uh, Christmas story that just makes us feel good. But the truth is, this story in Matthew 2 is loaded with profound, counterintuitive, upside-down truth that in many ways reveals the essence of the gospel. It's a chapter that answers some deep questions like, how can we believe there is a God when the world seems like it is in such a chaotic mess? And where is God when when things like human trafficking and child abuse and terrorism happen? Or if Christianity is true, then why don't all the smart people in the world just believe it? Why do so many uh, intellectuals turn away from it? Or what about all the people that I know who who don't believe in Jesus? They're not Christians. Do you ever have questions like that? you ever wonder about things like that? I mean, I do. And these are the kind of questions that have troubled many people at different times. Well, I want to say to you, the answer to all of these questions, or at least the beginning of these answers, are found here in this story. Let's begin by reading Matthew 2, verses 1 through 3, God's word to us. Matthew writes, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. I want to start real real quickly here with, with three incorrect assumptions that we just need to make sure we're clear on about the birth story of Jesus. And the first one is this. It was not a silent night. In fact, we kind of got a living illustration of that when our kids were up here. We added the, the, the child who was crying for realism, you know. Um, but it was not a silent night. And, and we tend in our Christmas carols and our depictions of the nativity to romanticize uh, the night of Jesus' birth, making it seem kind of like a precious moments Christmas, uh, Christmas card Rather than the chaotic, uh, inconvenient, OMG, she's having a baby right now, seeing that it actually was. Um, A couple of examples that I would give to you just to think about, and I'm not disparaging these. These are songs that I love, but Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. Have you ever been present for the birth of a baby? I mean, I've been at four and none were silent nights. <laughs> all was not calm. All was not bright, even after Mr. Lamaz showed up. You know, it, it's, just, it's just not that way. Or, say, away in a manger. You know, think about this line, the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying, he makes. I mean, whoever had a newborn and, and thinks that the newborn is not going to cry and yet we kind of depict it like this we kind of romanticize that scene so that we don't really see the realism that's going on there and this story is going to bring some heavy-duty realism to us second thing and i really do hate for some of you to mess up your nativity sets but the wise men were not there the wise men were not there i mean they started traveling when jesus was born that's when the star showed up and it it took at least several months For them to arrive maybe longer than that and so i kind of have a decorating pro tip at christmas just take the wise men out of your manger scene if you want to be biblically accurate you can put them on the other side of the room it will annoy your wife but you will be biblically accurate and if you really want to be accurate you need to bring the wise men back out in june for christmas part two kind of event because that's the way that it, it was and um they just—they were not there. The third thing that we need to correct is there were not three wise men. The Bible never says that. If you've always thought that, look again—it doesn't say that. We assumed there were three based on the fact that three gifts are mentioned: gold and frankincense and myrrh. But it never says there were three. Uh, it's more likely that there was a whole caravan of these traveling astrologers, and they probably would have come with scores of people attached to their, their, their group, along with the magi, the wives, the kids, the servants, all kinds of things like that. And, and, and in verse 3, did you notice it says that, that they disturbed the whole city? Now, I think three guys on camels is not going to do that. So it's probably a huge group. Uh, some of you who've read a few things may be aware that ancient tradition says that these men were named Gaspar, Melchior, and, and, and Balthazar, but we just don't know. We don't know their names. There, there's no indication of that. Um, I, I did hear about one little boy who was playing the third wise man in the Christmas story, and the first one came with a gift, presented it, and said, This is gold. The second one, came and presented their their gift and said, this is myrrh. And then this third little boy walked up and said, Frank sent this. (laughs) And so maybe one was named Frank. We don't know. Uh, But now that I've cleared that up, well, who were these guys? You know, who were these guys? And I I love this uh, painting that I found doing some research. It's from the late 19th century. And uh, part of the reason I love it is it does show this whole caravan of people traveling uh, from a long distance off. Well, they were they were astrologers. Uh, they studied stars. They studied constellations. But don't think like crazy psychics. Uh, the, their title indicates that they were part of a Persian priestly ruling class in all likelihood. And, and so you have to wonder, if they're studying the stars, how did they put this all together? A star that they saw, and it must be pointing to a king. And the shortest answer would be God revealed it to them. But then the question becomes, well, how... Did God reveal it it to them? And here's a possible answer that links some things that we know about in the scriptures. The Magi most likely came from Persia, where God had sent his own people into exile hundreds of years earlier. And we read, for example, in the book of Daniel that there were men like Daniel, uh, men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were living there as part of the wise men, part of the Magi of that day, uh, advisors to uh, the king, And these men, most likely as as Jewish men, would have shared the writings of Moses and shared the writings of the prophets with their fellow magi. These writings, of course, are full of prophecies about the Messiah. And so it is very likely that along with all the other writings that these men familiarized themselves with, that they were also familiar with Old Testament scriptures. And if they were reading the Old Testament scriptures, one prophecy that they would very likely have known about was particularly relevant to Jesus' birth. And it comes out of the story of a prophet named Balaam, this mysterious prophet named Balaam, uh, who is recorded in in Numbers 22 to 24. And the story goes like this. An enemy king named Balak is afraid of Israel, and so he hires this prophet named Balaam to come and to curse Israel. The, the israelite people and so balaam begins a journey to this place if you want to go old school on this he's riding on a donkey old school it says he was riding on balaam's ass and uh he, he's going there to get up high on, i thought some of you would appreciate that um, <laughs> to get up high on a mountain and so he can see the nation he can curse them now god doesn't want this to happen and so he sends an angel to stand in balaam's way And Balaam can't see the angel, but Numbers 22, verses 23 and 25 tells us that the donkey can see the angel. The angel has a sword in his hand, and the donkey veers off to avoid this. Well, Balaam, not knowing why this has happened, proceeds to start beating his donkey. Eventually, the angel moves, the donkey gets back on the path, and then a little farther down the road, the angel reappears, and this time, he's standing in the middle of a narrow path, where there's like walls on each side, and so the donkey doesn't have much room to move, but he he moves over to one side, and he crushes Balaam's foot against the wall, and Balaam curses, and he beats the donkey again. Well, that brings us to verse 26, where we read this. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam and he was angry and beat her with his staff. So at this point, I mean, he's really fed up. He goes all Old Testament on that donkey. And verse 28 says, then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Now, this is where it gets really funny, okay? You got to see the humor in the Bible sometimes. Verse 29, Balaam answered the donkey. That's funny. I mean, it really is, right? You see it? And he says, you have made a fool of me. That's even funnier. He doesn't say, why are you talking to me, my donkey? He doesn't think about the fact that he's talking to the donkey. He says, why have you made a fool of me? He says, if I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. Verse 30, the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey? which you have always written to this day. Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? Balaam's still talking. No, he said. It's pretty funny. And then, of course, um, God opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel, and Balaam realizes that his ass has uh, saved his life. Um, (laughs) And so instead of cursing Israel He prophesies blessing over Israel, and here is part of that blessing. This is numbers 24 verse 17. It says, "A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel." And the Jewish people always understood that this meant that a king was going to come. This is Messiah. He's going to rule the earth. He was going to bring blessing to all the nations on the earth. And it is very likely that these wise men from Persia might have been familiar with these prophecies. And so when God causes this unusual heavenly activity, whatever it was, of stars converging, whatever this is, we don't really know. They said, this is the sign we've been waiting for. We need to go see. And I think among other things, though, the wise men have been reminding us for 2,000 years now that God is always reaching out to us, that God is uh, using these wise men to show us that we always have a chance to seek God and to know God. And when that chance comes, we should seize it, no matter what it costs us. Now we're going to come back to the wise men in a moment, but let's take a moment to look at Herod, this, this psycho king. If you've read about Herod, he's a very significant character during this time historically. He's actually one of the very worst tyrant kings that Israel ever had. He had this Jewish heritage of a sort, uh, but he was really a Roman puppet. And I'll give you three things about Herod just to understand him. First of all, he was a narcissist. Herod was an incredible builder. This is his historical significance. And he built many massive, ornate uh, palaces and temples, and he always put his name all over them. Jewish tradition had said that when David, King David had lived earlier, he was running from Saul. You may remember the story of the time before he became a king, that at one point he hid out in a cave in a place called Masada. And Herod said, if Israel's greatest king uh, hid out in Masada, then I'm going to one-up him. I'm going to build a palace there where I can live in luxury. And he did. He he built this immense palace. Palace fortress, and it was way, way out in the desert, and uh, so he had to build this immense cistern system. It was actually so well designed, so large that in one rainfall, it could collect enough water uh, to supply ten thousand people for ten years. Uh, Herod figured out how to preserve figs and and dates so well that archaeologists in the 1940s, see, almost 2,000 years later, excavated this area and found one of Herod's storerooms still filled with food that he had stored all those centuries before. Secondly, Herod was psychotically paranoid. He was paranoid about losing power. Among other things, Herod had his wife killed because he thought she was conspiring against him, and then for good measure, he also killed... Uh, her mother, um, and the brother. A few years later, he had all three of his sons killed for the same reason. He thought they were plotting against him. And when he was inaugurated as king, uh, he invited all of his enemies to come together to a festival, like as a show of peace. But then he ambushed them and he killed them. There's a famous saying from the Emperor Augustus who, who, who said, it would be better to be Herod's sow, or his pig, than one of his sons and there's actually a word play going on in the two greek words they sound uh, sort of like each other so he was this really bad guy and probably the craziest thing that he did is on his deathbed he gave an order that when he died dozens of wealthy citizens would be executed at the moment of his death because herod knew no one was going to mourn his passing and he wanted when he died for there to be weeping and mourning and grieving in the land now, thankfully, that order was never carried out. He was dead. They didn't kill people. But that was Herod. And you could kind of sum it up by saying, third, that Herod was only concerned about himself. He really was a terrible ruler who exploited everyone just for his own selfish purposes. Uh, one other thing he did, once he was short on money, he had the 45 wealthiest citizens um, uh, executed on trumped-up charges, and he seized all of their estates. That was how Herod solved his debt crisis. He just stuck it to the 1%, you know. Uh, but it wasn't just them. Herod did this to everyone. He took half of everything the common men made, and in that time, uh, another 1-8 or 12.5% went to Caesar. And so this would mean practically, if you were like a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, when you came off the sea to the shore with your catch, there would be a tax collector uh, like Zacchaeus who would be standing there waiting to take uh, Herod's cut, Uh, the emperor's cut and then he would take some for himself and by the time it was all said and done uh, you could have paid as much as 75 percent in taxes it was so bad that at one point in herod's reign the sanhedrin sent a delegation to appeal to caesar saying that he had reduced israel to a land of helpless beggars that's herod now listen to what matthew tells us about him beginning in verse 4 I'm going to stop right there for a moment because you really would expect the next verse to be. And so all the scribes and all the religious leaders got up and packed their stuff and hightailed it over to Bethlehem. But one of the telling little details in Matthew's account is they did nothing. This news was met uh, with indifference. Verse 7 says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. But we know Herod doesn't want to worship him. Herod pretends worship, but he intends murder. Verse 9 through verse 12. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, I want to hold right here in our text, and I want to make the first three observations that I want to share with you these things that are embedded in this story what many of us see is this kind of nice sweet children's christmas story and the first one is this you can write this down the gospel is for the nations now this could be the main point of this story and if you have studied the different gospels maybe you know this each of the gospels while telling the same story has an intended audience it's, it's got a particular direction that gospel is being aimed and matthew's intended audience is the jewish people matthew's Prime purpose is to show the Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah and King. But notice this in light of that. In Matthew's account, the first people that he talks about who are coming to worship Jesus are pagans, pagan wise men. That's no accident. Some of you will know the answer to this question what are the last words of Matthew's gospel about? And you'll know that the answer is well, it's the Great Commission where Matthew records Jesus telling his followers to go to all the nations and preach the gospel. So what this means, think about it, Matthew bookends a gospel that he's written for the Jewish people with a focus on the nations. He begins his gospel by showing the nations coming to see the Messiah. He ends his gospel by telling the church to go and tell the nations about the Messiah. See, the core of the gospel message is Jesus has come for the nations. He's come for all people. And, you know, many people today want want to see Christianity as like a Western religion, but it has never been that. Jesus is not a Jewish savior. He's not a European savior. He's not an American savior. He's just the only savior. And there is no hope for the forgiveness of sins and healing from the curse of sin apart from him. And the task of the church is, is not complete until people from every tribe, tongue, and nation have come to kneel at his feet like these wise men did, have come to worship him. See, so if we read this story rightly, we cannot read it without reflecting on the fact that the commission we've been given has not been completed. I, I looked up some things this week, and uh, there are over at this day still 7,300 unreached people groups in the world. And an unreached people group is defined by missiologists as a group of 10,000 people or more united by a common language that have little or no access to the gospel. 1.5 billion people in our world have no access to the gospel. That means it's not written in their language and there's no one um, who speaks their language who can tell them. billion people in our world have little access to the gospel and this just tells us here Southwinds Church in Tracy that our job is not complete until these people have had a chance to hear we're part of fulfilling that mission this is why we must not be content to play church while people don't know while we will keep going while we will keep giving as a church, and as individuals, until everyone has heard. You know, sometimes from time to time, I'll have somebody say to me, don't you think Southwinds is big enough? I mean, we've got plenty of people. We've got, you know, a lot of nice programs. Um, we've got a nice new building now. You know, don't you think that we're build big, big enough? And I need to remind people when they say that the mission of the church is not the building or the comfort of the people in the building. The mission of the church is not us, The mission of the church is the people that aren't here yet. Uh, You've heard me say this from time to time before. I I need to say it regularly. Our focused area of mission, Tracy Mountain House and Lathrop, in those three communities, there are more than 100,000 people who do not know Jesus Christ. Think about that. Right here where we live. On your street, in all likelihood, eight of ten of your neighbors, at least, Do not know Jesus Christ. And the truth really is we will never be done this side of heaven because this is our mission. This is our purpose. And that that requires me to ask a question and get it real personal, not just corporate to all of us, but to individuals, to each one of us separately. What are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life to fulfill and advance the mission you know, the truth is there are what we might call wise men in every nation. There are people in all kinds of ethnic groups who are searching for truth. Some of them searching for truth in the stars, and we must go and tell them. We must be part of that effort to reach people who don't know Jesus yet. You know, sometimes we relegate this call to the professional people. You know, the missionaries, the pastors, and the truth of the matter is, most of us aren't called to go overseas, but all of us are called to walk across the street, every one of us. This is why we asked you earlier this, this year, just a few months ago, to identify your one. Are you praying for your one? Do you still know who your one is or if you've forgotten about your one? You know, I, I'm praying that there's going to be a lot of your ones here on Christmas Eve. And you still have time to invite your one if you haven't done that yet. To leverage this opportunity, this time when people are open to the gospel like they they almost aren't any other time of the year. Here's the point. God is calling us to be part of the mission and no one is exempt from that. We are called to go wherever God sends us. We are called to give so that others can go. And if you don't think this applies to you, I have to ask you the question. Do you really think that the Great Commission does not apply to you. See, Matthew begins in this way. This is in the Christmas story. Uh, This Christmas story is so loaded with upside-down truth. Matthew begins. He tells uh, the Christmas story, uh, come and see. He ends his gospel by saying, go and tell. Let me give you a second truth. You can write this down also in your notes. God commands the universe to accomplish his purposes. Now, One of the things that Matthew does is he marks his Christmas story with all these evidences of God's sovereign total control over everything. Think about this. God caused Rome to tax the whole world so that he could move one little couple, Joseph and Mary, to Bethlehem where the prophecy said that Jesus would be born. One person wrote about this and said, just think of how inefficient that was. All God had to do was whisper in Joseph's ear, hey, you need to go to Bethlehem. But God did not do that. He moved the emperor of Rome to do a census of the whole world. And maybe this is Matthew's way of showing you that God has no problem wielding an entire empire to accomplish the fulfillment of just one little prophecy. Prophecy. Because he's in control. Matthew also shows you that God wants pagan sorcerers to be among the first to worship Jesus as his birthday, at his birthday party just to make a point. So he, command, he, he commandeers the constellations to bring them there. I mean, look at this. He controls the heavens. He speaks through donkeys. He manipulates governments. There is not one square inch. Not one square inch of this entire universe where God does not have complete control. And that should give you great confidence for living your life. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote uh, The Lord of the Rings, wrote The Hobbit. uh, Many of you have uh, read those books. More of us have probably seen the movies. Um, And you may not know this, but he was a devout Christian. He was also uh, the guy who led C.S. Lewis to Christ. I mean, how would you like to have that on your, your spiritual resume? And one of the reasons that so many of his characters and his stories are drawn from nature, trees and eagles and all kinds of things, was was to make this point, to show how God commandeers every element of the universe to accomplish his purposes. And this is just the testimony of God's word. The Scriptures. nothing. No one can stand in God's way. And if God needs to rearrange the universe to make his purpose happen, then he'll do it. And this also means if you're an individual believer, he can do the same thing for you. The same God who sovereignly arranged all the stars in the sky, sovereignly arranges every single detail of your life. Romans eight twenty eight says that God causes all things to work together for good. His purpose, which is uh, the conforming of his children, that's us, to be conformed to the image of his son, that's Jesus. He does all these things to accomplish his purpose. And he's always doing these things. This means that in the very worst chapters of your life, he's been doing these things. He's been working his plan, working his purpose. And that means even when things are terrible in your life, you can trust him. You can rest in him because he's in control of every detail and he's working to fulfill the purposes that he has in our lives. How about an amen for that? God is so good. Here's the third thing. God turns the world's wisdom upside down. So we have these wise men and these are wise men uh, which means that this story is showing us a few things about worldly wisdom. And these are some insights I, 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 I found in a message from Tim Keller. Three things, and I think it's very insightful. He says, first of all, uh, this story shows us that the world's wisdom is dated. The world's wisdom is dated. Now, the wise men, these wise men were considered wise because they knew how to read the stars. Doesn't that seem foolish today? Although millions of people still consult their horoscopes. And by the way, if you do that, I have a word from the Lord for you. Stop it. (laughs) Seriously. You shouldn't. But... They were thought to be wise because they could look at the stars. And this is really just the way it is with all areas of what the world considers wisdom. You know, I think of psychological theory. I'm not an expert in that field, but Freud was in, Freud's out, and he probably came back in. He's probably been out. And there's other people in in those same veins. I go to the areas where I've done my academic study, and there's uh, a group of people known as the Jesus Seminar a few years ago that among other things, said that only about one-sixth of the sayings attributed to Jesus actually came from him, and they, they were in for a while, but now they're out, and they'll probably come back in again. There's certain scientific theories. If you're in these fields, you know they're in, they're out. Uh, they're in, they're out. Then they're ridiculed. Uh, some of you, even today, may be here, and you're, even if you don't know it, but you may be basing your entire higher worldview, your life, on something called postmodernism, and you think that truth is relative and truth is subjective. If you do, I have really just one question for you. Are you absolutely sure about that? You can think about that question. Some of you who have adopted these ideas, do you think that all truth claims and all relationships are just about power, that, that politics is fundamentally about identity and about intersectionality? And I'm not here to debate any of this. I'm just telling you that this idea, this theory, this way of looking at the world called Post-modernism has only been around for a few decades. And I'm going to tell you something more. I probably won't be around to see the fulfillment of this prophecy, but I'm going to make it anyway. A few decades from now, they're going to set it all aside and it's going to be something else. Because the world's wisdom is dated. You know, every generation thinks our intellectuals are different. You know, in a 100 years, they're all going to be admired for their genius. It never happens like that. A 100 years from now, they're going to be laughing at us, at the things we believe, the things that they're going to see is so foolish, just like you look back 100 years and you say, "I can't believe that people actually used to believe that." See, the Bible <laughs> the Bible teaches us, and history bears this out, that where, whatever the educated and intellectual people of one generation believe, that's going to be set aside and even probably ridiculed by the educated intellectual people of the next age. And yet, friends, we have something different. We have God's word. And we can pick up God's word and read God's word, and we can know that we're dealing with ultimate truths, the core of which Christians have believed consistently for thousands of years. I love C.S. Lewis's quotes. He has so many good ones. He says that all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. That's true. Second insight uh, about the world's wisdom is that it's inadequate. Here's a trick question. I'll let you know ahead of time. Uh, How exactly did the wise men find Jesus? And what you would probably say if I didn't tell you was a trick question is the star. But that's not exactly true. The star got them started, but where did they get the details to help them understand the star meant something? Well, that's the scriptures. That's God's word. And in doing this, Matthew is showing you that worldly wisdom is severely limited. Worldly wisdom may help you diagnose problems sometimes, but it it never enables us to truly fix problems. How many problems do you look around and see, and you thought 20 years ago we'd be past these things by now, and yet they keep emerging, they keep coming up. We're still dealing with the same problems we've always dealt with, right? We can't seem to figure it out. Now, John Mayer has a song, years Old Now. Uh, maybe you remember it called Waiting on the World to Change. You remember that song? And, and part of the lyric says, now we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We, we just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. And so Meyer, he knows there's a problem. But the song, though it's not intended to be this way, I think, is kind of depressing in the end because there's no answers. You know, the answer is we're just waiting, waiting on the world to change. Just waiting. Who thinks that sounds like a good idea? Who, who thinks we're going to be waiting tomorrow and waiting the next year and waiting the decade after and, and we're, we're just going to be waiting I mean, everyone can look at problems and maybe diagnose problems, problems with our leaders, problems with poverty, and problems with racism, but no one has answers that actually work. And so we're going to wait on the world to change all by itself. See, the worldly wisdom is inadequate. And then third, the world's wisdom is narrow and exclusive. I mean, think about this. Really, in the end, the only people with access to the world's wisdom are the worldly wise. And so if you're smart... If you're highly educated, you have access. But if you're not, you don't. You're out. See, the world's wisdom is very exclusive. But by contrast, the first people to worship Jesus, the Gospels tell us, are wise men and shepherds. And think about this. These are people on opposite ends of the spectrum. You have the highly educated and you have the not at all educated. And both groups find themselves at the foot of a cradle... See, the truth of the matter is, when you understand it rightly, the gospel is the most inclusive worldview ever, because it is only the gospel that brings together all of the races. It is only the gospel that brings together the rich and the poor, the educated and the ignorant, the righteous and the unrighteous, because only the gospel says that all mankind has one common problem, which is sin, and one solution, which is Jesus. You see, in Christ, the Jewish Pharisee, the pagan philosopher, the king, the shepherd, and the prostitute all sit down together because the basis of their acceptance is not found in who they are or anything they've done. It is only found in what Christ has accomplished by his grace, the grace displayed in his birth as a baby, the grace displayed when he hung on a cross to bear sin in our place. See, Matthew is letting us know that this is the cradle that rocks the world, that turns upside down all of the world's values. And, and by the way, don't miss this. In the eyes of the Jewish people to whom Matthew is writing, both the wise men and the shepherds were the wrong kind of people. These are who come to hear the gospel And you really have to see how crazy this is. I mean, if you're writing a book to persuade Jewish people, do you really want to start the book by showing them that the first people who get the truth are pagan philosophers and this unmarried couple with a baby, a couple everyone else sees as immoral? Those are the first people? But that's what Matthew does. That's what the Gospels do. You see, Matthew is trying to show you that everything is upside down, that everything in this world that the world says makes you worthy in God's eyes, the Gospel turns upside down because the Gospel, the Gospel says no one is worthy, no one is righteous. All have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. The Gospel turns the world's values upside down by basing god's acceptance of us on his grace and not on our merits and that makes the gospel different from every other answer you're ever going to find anywhere in the world see there's one problem sin and there's one solution and that's jesus now one more thing this story has to teach us we need to go back to our text to see it, verses 13 through 18. Matthew writes, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now here's the insight. You can write this down too. Jesus is God's answer to senseless evil and my pain. Now, this is a very dark part of the Christmas story. This part of the story probably doesn't get read too much at candlelight Christmas Eve services because this part of the story ends in tragedy. Herod realizes the wise men are not coming back so he can kill the baby king until he goes on one of his maniacal rages. He orders that all the baby boys uh, two years or under in Bethlehem and the vicinity be killed. And just to clarify this, we may read this, and I think we, we might hear and think that like hundreds, maybe thousands of babies are killed, but, but Bethlehem was small. It was kind of rural. So this massacre probably just meant 20 or maybe 30 dead babies. But that doesn't lessen the horror. It's hard to imagine anything worse for the families. But Matthew, as he tells this story, does something interesting, maybe puzzling at first to us. He, he quotes two very important Old Testament passages that really speak hope into the midst of tragedy. And you need to get this. First of all, Matthew 2.15 is quoting Hosea 11.1, where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And this is a reference... Uh, to the exodus from Egypt in which God took his people Israel out of the brutal pain of slavery and he brought them into a land of peace and promise and then second, verse 18, where it says a voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, This is a, a quote from Jeremiah 31 15 and in this verse Jeremiah is offering hope to the children of Israel who are who are being taken off into exile away from their land. If you don't remember the story, after God had, had brought Israel into the promised land, delivering them from slavery in Egypt, he said to them, you are my people, and if you serve me and worship me, I will give you this promised land forever, and you can live here in peace and prosperity. But then he said, if you defy me, if you worship idols, if you sin against me, I'm going to send you into exile from this land. Centuries later, after centuries of sin, after centuries of persistent, defiant sin, God fulfilled that promise, and he sent his people into Israel. And this was over 500 years before Jesus. And you can read it in the Old Testament, how the Babylonian Empire attacked Jerusalem, destroyed the city, they took a bunch of Jewish captives, and they held them in a place north of Jerusalem called Ramah, And it was at this place, kind of a staging area, you could think about it. Maybe families, these captives, were were torn apart. The families were, were sold into slavery to various Babylonians. And just try to imagine the pain of seeing your family ripped apart, children going one direction, parents being sold to go in another direction, never to see each other again, little children being sold into sex slave trade or little children murdered in front of you because no one wanted them at this moment and no one wants to deal with them. Can you imagine uh, the horrific pain there in Ramah? And in the midst of this unspeakable pain, Jeremiah says, one day your voice will cease. It's weeping. One day your eyes will cease from tears for your children shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. What is that hope? Well, God is going to bring his people back from exile, and he will do it by sending a new king who will inaugurate a new covenant in which he changes hearts and reconciles people to himself and also to each other. He will bring peace on earth. And Matthew is using this prophecy to point to the ultimate king, which is Jesus. Matthew is using these prophecies to show you that Jesus is the ultimate exodus, that he is the true deliverance from bondage to sin, slavery to sin. He is showing you that Jesus is the ultimate return from our exile away from God. See, Matthew is using these Old Testament scriptures and implying those truths to this situation. On the one hand, there's this horrible news. Children all over Bethlehem have been slaughtered, but at the same time, There's good news. There's hope. A new king is born. Not a king like Herod. A king who will conquer death, not cause death. A king who will not exploit others for his own purposes, but will pour out his life for others. A new king who will reconcile us to himself and to each other. And when you let that begin to sink in and you apply it to our world today, it should give great comfort. I mean, just over the last few years, think for a moment about all the horrific violence that we've seen in our country, around the world. Mass shootings, ISIS beheadings, just terrible things all around the globe. Think about all the racial injustice, all the economic injustice, all the sex trafficking. Think about all the millions of people right now who are being persecuted for their faith all around the world. I mean, when you think about that, it can really discourage and even depress you but I need to remind you of something important. There is no answer for all of those things except the cross of Jesus Christ. Evolution doesn't cut it. You know, that's just the way it is. I mean, the way the world's evolved, you know, it's a dangerous place, and we we just need to figure out how how to deal with it. Just too bad for those kids, too bad for those sex slaves, too bad for those martyrs. See, the gospel speaks an emphatic no to that and tells us that God has the last word. God has the last word for those kids enslaved in sex trafficking and murdered in gun violence, for those kids in Bethlehem, for people everywhere who suffer injustice. The Herods of this world do not get the last word. God gets the last word. Jesus does. God is going to take all that Herod intended for evil and use it for good. He's going to take the pain of tragedy and weave it into triumph. And in the end, His joy, his joy, God's joy, Jesus' joy, will cause memories of painful past to fade away just like a woman in labor forgets her pain as soon as she holds that newborn baby. See, the gospel says the world is the way it is because of sin. But Christmas tells us a king has been born who will bring an end to sin because he will bear the curse of sin in our place. And he will one day put an end to all suffering. He will one day make everything right again. And those that we have lost in tragedy and suffering will be brought back, reunited to us. And all of this happens. Do not forget this. Do not miss this. It all happens through the birth of a baby that hardly anyone noticed. We like to sing a song on Christmas Eve, and we're going to sing it this year, O Holy Night. That's one of our favorites, right? And part of the lyrics to O Holy Night say, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppressions shall cease. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And that's a good word, isn't it? But I have a better word. Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And again, this is the cradle that has rocked the world. The truth is the most profound questions that our world asks are ultimately answered in the birth of this baby in a manger. And Jeremiah is saying to these people back then, you are weeping now, but one day God will reverse the curse. One day God will bring the children back from exile. One day God will make all the sad things come untrue. So here's what I really want to ask each of us today, and it's this. Have you ever really gotten the message of Christmas? I mean, I know you know the story of the wise men, but have you received the message of Christmas? And the message of Christmas is the gospel. It's the good news. And the gospel is for you. A Savior has been born. For you, just like we sung a while ago, a son has been given. And if you will receive him, And believe in him that he is the one god has sent to save you from your sins then you can know forgiveness and you can know peace and you can know meaning and you can know purpose in your life you don't have to earn it you don't have to prove yourself to god it's not the way the world says it is god turns everything upside down and says you come to me by grace and i'll receive you in my mercy and you can be my child have you received the message of the gospel this Christmas? You know, I was thinking some about this story, and there's a real sense in which God, you know, used the star to reach the wise men, and the star was like a sign. We don't really know for sure what it was. There's all kinds of speculation. But I think it's really true that God still, in a sense, uses star Stars. And by that, I mean signs that he uses to catch our attention and cause us to wonder. Stars and signs in our lives that make us realize the world is not right, that there must be something more, there must be something better. And your star might be pain in your life that causes you to look outside yourself. Your star may be unanswered questions that you have about this world and maybe about other people. Your star might be dreams that you finally achieved and yet when you achieve what you've been searching for and yearning for for so long, you find out that those dreams didn't give you what you'd hoped. See, here's the thing. I think God is reaching out to some of you this Christmas, speaking to your heart and showing you that you need a savior and that that savior has been born and his name is Jesus. And you can receive him today. You can know him today. If you will give him your heart, you give him your life, turn from your sins, turn to him in faith and trust that what Jesus, this baby born in Bethlehem, who grew up and revealed the father, who died on the cross to bear the sins of the world, who God raised from the dead, vindicating his death, proving to us that his death did pay for our sins. This baby born at Christmas, he is the savior and you can know him. And you can receive forgiveness today. This is the gospel. This is the message of Christmas. Will you receive it?